We will be finishing up Mark chapter 1 this morning. So if you can turn to the Gospel of Mark or get to it on your technology. Last week we reflected on Jesus having what? Great, anybody remember? Authority, authority like that of no other man. Um, we looked at it, how it played out in regard to his teaching, in his power over evil spiritual forces, and even over sickness and disease. And this morning, we're going to look at the final two scenarios of Mark chapter 1. And for sure, each story has a lot to tell us in and of themselves. Uh, but what I'd like us to do is also learn a lesson as we compare, kind of hold up to the light side by side these two stories, though they may seem pretty different at first. Um, and in the first scene, we're going to see Jesus taking some time to seek his father out in solitude and prayer. Um, and the fact that he listened to the father, got, gained clarity during that time, respond in responded in obedience. And then the second scenario, we're going to have a that comes um, to the Son of God, to Jesus. And we're going to see that in the end, he does the right thing to come, just like we see Jesus coming to the Father, this man comes to the Son. But in the end, he doesn't listen to Jesus. And he doesn't respond in obedience. And I think that there's, there's a bit of a contrast there and some things to learn from that. So we're going to start just by reading verses 35 through 39 in Mark chapter 1. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. So this is probably between like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., very early in the morning. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions, and I'll just stop there for a minute. A lot of people think Mark purposely doesn't call them, what? Disciples at this point, because in a, in a lot of ways, they may not be acting like disciples. So it's interesting. Mark says, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found them, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. <laughs> Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving demons. So Jesus is off what we talked about last week, a day that is full of, of preaching um, during the Sabbath. And then later that day, uh, a day of healing. Even while he was in the synagogue, he cast out a demon. And then, we're, if you remember last week, Peter's house is inundated with the sick, and Jesus heals and drives out demons probably well into the night. So Jesus, we, we should never think of any of this as easy for Jesus the man. It may very well be that, that this healing ministry that he had um, really was exhausting to him, that, that it was arduous in every sense of the word. So Jesus does what uh, all men do. He goes to sleep, and he, um, he then gets up. 
very, very early, um, kind of pre-dawn. And he goes out and he seeks solitude, just being alone. Not just for the, not just for the uh, cause of being alone. Not even just for the cause of getting away from people, like I need to get away from everybody. I mean, Jesus spent more meaningful time with people in three years than we probably will in our entire lives. Um, but Jesus takes this time in communication with his heavenly father. And we see this as a pattern all through the gospels with Jesus, that he takes time in solitude and prayer with the heavenly father. Um, we live in a time that, that people generally feel like it, it's, it's our right to have access to one another at any time in any place, Right. Mom, I texted you 10 times. Why didn't you get back to me right away, right? Right? That's not true, right? Stephen, I texted you 10 times. Why didn't you get back to me right away? Is that true? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> and, and when we are alone, we tend to be plugged into something. Uh, we're plugged into our, our smartphones. We're t- plugged into our tablets, into our computers. We have music in our ears. Um, the idea of valuing silence, the idea of valuing true solitude and prayer during that time is something that is really very foreign to many of us in our culture. And, and now I would actually dare to say scary for a lot of people in our culture. We, we have become accustomed to constant noise, constant noise. But when we, we think about this, this is really striking that Jesus, who is the Son of God, God the Son, the most important person that ever walked the earth. And this often strikes me. I've been serving here for almost 13 years. Jesus had three years to accomplish all that he needed to accomplish while he walked the earth. Yet, in that three years, he prioritized solitude and prayer. You know, again, and I know we, we all say, we all say it, I say it, you say it, we all say it. We are so busy. And maybe I'm just too busy. And perhaps that is indeed the case. Perhaps we are too busy. And and that's not like, I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket because that is what what we're told that we should be. That that busyness, somehow we value busyness. That we think we're, you know, we kind of have a little bit of pride in saying that. I'm so busy. Yet we look at Jesus, God the Son, three years to accomplish what he has to accomplish. And he is He is going regularly in solitude and prayer before the Heavenly Father. So maybe that is indeed the case. We are too busy. And maybe we need to reprioritize. So I'm not sure I can do that. Then we're too busy. (laughs) We're allowing life to dictate us. I, I read an article concerning um, a Nielsen study, and this is, this is stunning, but this, this is like, this was a Nielsen study uh, that was done just last year, less than a year ago, August of last year, 
about um, Americans and, ha- and their engaging technology. And the reality now is, through, according to this Nielsen study, that Americans spend most of their waking hours engaging their technology. It, 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 it read, and I quote, Americans spend more, more time than ever watching videos, browsing social media, and swiping, this is interesting, this was a secular article, swiping their lives away on their tablets and smartphones. American adults spend more than, does anyone want to guess how many hours a day? Hmm? More. More than 11 hours a day on average. I'm like, how is that possible? Americans spend more than 11 hours a day watching, reading, listening to, or simply interacting with media. According to a new study by market research group Nielsen, that's up from 9 hours, 32 minutes just four years ago. That's stunning. That's stunning. Now, you might say, I don't spend nearly that much time on my technology. But my guess is many of us spend enough <laughs> And I just, the challenge would be that could we reprioritize some of that time? Just some of it. Just start shifting and saying, okay, so here I would normally, you know, check Facebook for half an hour. Instead, I'm going to check Facebook for five minutes and I'm going to take 20 minutes. Could we start reprioritizing and saying, God, I will give you not just my leftovers, but some real quality time of solitude, of prayer in the word. Can you imagine how transformational that would be to your inner life, to your outer life? I think we have this misnomer that, that we just know God and every once in a while we, we give it a, a quick shot and thank you God and maybe we come on a Sunday morning and somehow we're going to have tanks full to go out and, and know what God wants us to do and minister in his name and his character. And we're just driving around on empty tanks all the time and just putting more and more noise in our ear. What if we start recapturing the value of solitude and quiet and communication with God in that place, listening to the great whisper of our, to our souls. But you'll need to commit to it, um, <laughs> and you'll need to find a time that works best. For some, it's going to be very early in the morning. Maybe some of you would say... Okay, three in the morning sounds a little unrealistic to me. Maybe, it, you know, but maybe it's another time. And I, I will say, if we could sit down, like someone, someone might be really talented in bookkeeping and say, hey, let's sit down and look at the books and let's help you create a budget. You know, maybe we need to start sitting down with one another and saying, how are we budgeting our time? Boy, maybe we can, maybe, we, you know, maybe that's a sort of accountability we need. But the reality is, is that when we find that time, we're going to have to pursue it, prioritize it, and guard it. You know why? Because everything is going to tell you you've got no time for that. 
everything's going to tell you, you've got no time for that. You're going to be like, okay, Lord, I've got these, I've, I've set aside this 15 minutes a day. This is all yours, Lord. And you know what? If we get into that rhythm, I'd almost guarantee you that 15 minutes, all of a sudden it becomes 20 and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is really good. Quiet, solitude, no noise, no distraction. And all of a sudden maybe that half an hour becomes an hour. I don't, wow, am I getting radical? But everything's going to continue to say, you've got no time for that. Jesus has this amazing day and night of ministry. And, and, and there's no doubt that the next morning people are pounding on Peter's door again. And saying, hey, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And, and my guess is the disciples are so excited about what happened the day before. And then they go into the guest bedroom where Jesus is at Peter's house. And he's not there. And then it says that, Mark says that they went to look for him. And in the Greek, this, this idea of looking is actually never presented in a positive light. What it act, it's a very strong phrase. It actually is this aggressive phrase that means they hunted for him. They tracked him down. And, and then they, they get to Jesus and they're, you know, they're probably thinking, hey... Here this movement has started. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus, the miracle worker, who can stop us? Before long, more and more people are going to come. And Capernaum, maybe this is going to be our, our, you know, our, our new capital or whatever. Their thing. And before you know it, not even Rome will be able to stop us. And, it's, and maybe Peter's thinking, and it started at my house. And, and they go to Jesus, and they're like, they finally find him, and everybody's looking for you. You don't have time for this, Jesus. You, you can't, there's no time for your little excursions of solitude. There's no time to get away and be quiet and pray. There's ministry to be done. Does that sound ridiculous? That was happening then. <laughs> How much is it happening now? Could it be that when we don't have time for intimacy with God, when we feel like we don't, when we say we don't, because there's just too many other important things to do, or maybe even important things that we say we're doing in God's name, could it be that, that we're overestimating their importance? Or could it be at very least that we're overestimating our ability to engage them thoughtfully and in the character and the will of God before we even listen to him? So Jesus listens in, in the solitude and the quiet, and he knows what has to happen next. His ministry in Capernaum, this is great. So again, if you could just picture the scene, his ministry in Capernaum has been a smashing success, and his disciples are probably all revved up, and this is just going to be the greatest thing, and all these people are coming, and, and we, we can't, you know, the excitement of, of all, this, all this, this movement that's happening in the crowds and the healings, and Jesus is like, I know what we need to do next. What is it, Lord? We need to leave. None of the disciples would have chose that. They're like, you know, they're probably thinking, it's happening here. This is the vortex. This is what God's doing. It's right here, right now. Jesus is like, no, 
I spent some time with the Father. And, and we need to go. We need to keep moving. <laughs> you know, it's times in prayer. And again, I'm preaching this to myself. And I, as, I, as, I was, as I was driving over here, Lord, help me. You know, and that's again where, where Glenda is sharing. And I'm like, the Spirit of God, Lord, make me more of a prayer warrior and someone that just loves to be sitting at your feet and in your presence. Because it's in those times that, that we begin to have our mind and our heart and our will aligned with God, God's will. A lot of times we look at prayer the other way, right? We were, we're trying to align God's heart with our heart, his will with our will. But really what's supposed to be happening is, okay, my mind, my heart, my will now becomes, comes in line with God's will. And even Jesus needed this. The crowds were pressing in. His popularity was skyrocketing. The people were coming to be healed. And it was like he was reminded in that time, why have I come? Why have I come? Uh, it wasn't just to be popular. It wasn't to be a spectacle. It wasn't even just to alleviate temporary needs, though he showed over and over again how much he cared about those things. It was to spread the news of God's kingdom rule. And, and to have people come face to faith, face with accepting it through repentance and faith, reception and direction, or, or not. Now, now, Jesus never says that that felt needs don't matter. Rather, he's always responding to them, and we'll see that again in this next story. He's always engaging them with compassion. He's always healing. He's always delivering. But at the same time, we see here that he refuses to lose focus on his main mission. And we could ask, like, does social justice matter? Does... does does the plight of the poor and the oppressed matter? Does praying for the sick matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something wrong with our churches when, when we say, hey, we're all about the gospel, but, but we have no concern for the oppressed and the poor. There's something gravely wrong when we do that. But at the same we see that we must remember all the ills of the world are, are symptoms of a greater problem. The result of humanity walking away from God in rebellion. Intimate restoration of all the ills of, of the earth comes with reconciling with the God who has given us life. Amen? And, and that's, why, that's why the good news of the kingdom of God must remain central. That's why we say at our church, we must be Christ-centered. We must be gospel-centered. Listen, I care about social justice. I care about those who are being oppressed. I care. We should care. We should want to be generous and, to the, and, and respond to the plight of the poor, but always through the lens of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. 
Like I'm giving you a bowl of soup, but I'm not just giving you a bowl of soup. I'm giving you a bowl of soup in Jesus' name. Do you know God loves you, right? Jesus says that that preparation is why he had come. So verses 40 through 45, the end here of chapter 1. A man with leprosy, so now they're, they're journeying, on, journeying on through Galilee. Jesus is preaching. He's driving out demons. It's, you know, Paul says, uh, I mean, Mark says that so lightly. Uh, it seems like that, that, that demon, the, the, the demons have had this heightened activity, which shouldn't surprise us in Jesus' place and his travels. And now in verse 40, it says, a man with leprosy, came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Let that ruminate for a second. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. It's actually some of the language here, again, when you study this, is really interesting. It, 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 even sending him away, it's, it's really literally kind of drove him away. At once with a strong warning, and th- those things are kind of coupled together. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing. And that's found in Leviticus chapter 14 as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to from everywhere. So, away through this Galilean ministry, and a leper comes to him hoping for healing. Now, leprosy, um, lepers were treated uh, much like, if you're old enough to remember this, kind of AIDS. Victims were treated in the 80s and 90s. Um, I have an uncle. My uncle Teddy died at 35 in 1995 of AIDS. And I remember even um, early on then, you know, in the early 90s, us asking, like, can we touch him? Right? There was this, how, how is this transmitted? And there's tons of fear. And so lepers, lepers were treated that way, but worse in this culture. Leprosy was kind of a catch-all um, for uh, what we know as leprosy is Haman's disease, but also for all kinds of different skin diseases um, in the Jewish na- nation. Lepers were cut off from all social contact, from family, from the synagogue, which would have been all their social, their, their social life, their family life. Um, they, they wouldn't be able to, to work, engage in work. No one would trade with a leper. To touch them meant religious defilement. It's really uh, shocking when we read. This is, this is the plight of the leper. We find this in Leviticus. This is how they're ordered to live. Levit- Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. So they had to show themselves through uh, these kind of ratty clothes. Let his hair be unkept. Cover the lower part of his face and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! 
So wherever he goes, that's what he's got to do. If someone's walking down the street, unclean, unclean. So the people could avoid him. As long as he has the infection, he, must re- he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Uh, author David Garland says, the leper was viewed as a living corpse. The leper was viewed as a living corpse. They would only live with other lepers until they died. So that any sense of community they would have would be other people dying of the same disease. And um, in the rare case they did recover, they would need to have verification from a, a priest, a Jewish priest, and then after kind of a long confirmation process and, and, and giving a thank offering, then they could be reestablished in, in society. But again, that would have been very rare. So we can only imagine the scene that as Jesus is moving about his ministry and the crowds are around him, this leper does what he was not supposed to do. He really, he really defies all the rules and... <clears throat> he, I can't quite imagine, it's probably like the ocean departs, you know, when people realized that a leper was in their midst. You know, the, the, the crowd's around Jesus, but as soon as a leper comes, whoosh, everybody backs off. It was actually, in later Jewish writings, it says in this sort of scenario, a leper could be stoned for doing what he was doing here. What did he have to lose? <laughs> He's like, I'm a, dead, I'm a walking dead man already. Society was repulsed by him. We, we still have people, each little subculture, that is repulsed by other people. And, and I think we always need to be examining our own hearts Who am I repulsed by? The sick, the handicapped, the mentally challenged. Ooh, people people might not say that out loud. Who do you give a wide berth to? Who do you keep your distance? The obese, maybe it's ethnic, maybe it's racial, maybe it's the Muslim, maybe it's political, the liberal the feminist, maybe it's chosen lifestyles, the homosexual. Who are you repulsed by? Who do you give a wide berth to? I imagine it took this man all the courage that he could muster to come before Jesus, and he falls on his knees in front of him. What does he have to lose? Everybody gasping, everybody hacking, everybody you know, covering their mouths. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Why why do you think he says, if you are willing? And I'm not not asking like there's some rocket science answer to that. (laughs) Why do you think he says that? If you are willing, you can Mm. Anybody else? If you're willing, my Lord has done it. 
Yeah, he was like the refuse of the culture. He was garbage to the culture. Um, and, and many in that culture, and Christians still do this today, sadly, would associate those diseases with, oh, he must have, he must have sinned. He must have got something wrong. That must be God's judgment on him. <clears throat> he knows, in, in, in one sense, it's almost like it's appropriate because he knows he can't heal himself. And he knows Jesus can heal him. Like, you get that sense. He has complete faith. I can't heal myself. I know you can. That needs to be where we all start, right? I can't get this right. I can't fix myself. I can't reconcile myself to God. Jesus, I know you can. But it's like he's saying, but do you want to? Uh, the author Walter Wessel says, it's sometimes easier to believe in God's power than his mercy. It's sometimes easier to believe in God's power than his mercy. And Jesus is filled with a strong emotion when the man comes to him. Our modern translations say that he was filled with compassion or he was filled with pity. Um, some earlier translations actually say he's filled with anger, which is very interesting. Clearly he wasn't angry at the man it very well may be that he was so angry at the, ram, at, at, at the, the sin-riddled world and the consequences of it that a man like him would suffer at every level, that Satan seemed to be having his way. I think maybe there's something appropriate that he both had compassion and anger. And maybe that's even appropriate for us sometimes, that, that, that this kind of righteous indignation mingled with compassion that we know it's so wrong and that it's not God's will for mankind. And then what does Jesus do? He touches the man who surely hadn't been touched since he was called leper. We love to label people, don't we? The leper. When we label people, it's, it's just much easier to dehumanize them then. Now it's not even, and again, I, I said a million times, I know immigration is complicated, but it's not even illegal immigrants anymore. It's illegals. Illegals. We love to label people because then you can dehumanize people. It's not a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister who's hurting and has a story and... <laughs> And Jesus touches him, and no doubt when he does this, he, 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 the, the crowd gasps because not only may have, he have been contagious, but according to the Old Testament law, Jesus would have defiled himself to do that. The author R. Allen Cole says, in the antiseptic cleanliness of modern hospitals, we lose sight of wonder of the parable of Jesus in all his purity, stooping to touch the ugliness and stench of our sin to bring healing and forgiveness. And then later he comments, the whole gospel is here in a nutshell. Christ redeems us from the curse by coming under a curse for our sake. He touched the untouchable. It's as if he's saying in that touch, he healed him with what? A word. But he touches him. It's as if he's, he's saying, and he's, it's foreshadowing, I will take your defilement, brother.
And then there's these three just beautiful words where the Lord says, I am willing. Lord, are you willing? Do you want to? I know you can heal me. I know you can forgive me. I know you can love me. I know you can restore me. I know you can save me, Jesus. But do you really want to? And it might look different and have a different timetable than you expect. And some things are going to be fully realized in eternity. I get it. But you know what I know Jesus' response is when we come to him and say, if you're willing, Lord, will you make me clean? He says, I am willing. Be clean. And then Jesus does what no one would do. (laughs) He sends a man away. Um, it's the opposite. He, it's the opposite. He does the opposite of, hey, look what I can do. You know, he does the opposite of that. He sends the man away. He sends him away with a strong warning in the Greek. That, that the phrase is to snort like a horse. It's kind of weird, but it's this, this idea, this warning that it's a really strong uh, emphasis on this. And he tells him not to tell anyone, go to the priest, offer your sacrifices, have your healing verified. But instead, this guy goes to anyone and everyone and just starts talking. You know what Jesus did for me? And it seems understandable, right? I mean, this guy's whole life has just been changed in an instant. The problem is he does exactly what Jesus tells him not to do. And it strikes me that obedience to Jesus often goes against our logic and against what feels right in the moment. That's why spending time with God is so important. In prayer, let me know your nature. Let me know your word. Let me meditate it. Not just read it through as quick as I can. Let me meditate it on it and take in who you are because what you tell me to do is so often counterintuitive to what feels right. It's to trust that the Lord has greater wisdom and greater foresight than I do. That he knows the beginning from the end and that to go against his word in the end always has negative results, no matter how much it feels right at the time. And, and as a result, Jesus, who it, it seems like there's some irony here, earlier had chosen some, some healthy solitude with God, is now has his, his ministry hindered. He can't even move about in freedom. And he's ironically driven to, as Mark describes it, lonely places by who? The crowds. And the miracle-seeking crowds restrict Jesus. And, and I just wonder how, how frustrating it would have been for God the Son, who in eternity past knew no restriction, to have these sort of restrictions. Jesus longs to heal, to show mercy, to bring restoration. His miracles are a reflection of his divine authority, but ultimately the goal isn't found in temporary relief. The goal isn't found in the goggling of the crowd seeking supernatural miracles and displays of power. Because when you start, because when you're on a diet of that, you'll just keep demanding that. And then if you start talking about repentance and obedience and sacrifice and daily dying to yourself, those kind of crowds disappear. 
Jesus is not seeking shallow spectacle seekers. He's calling disciples who will respond in repentance and faith to the good news of the love of God found in his kingdom rule. And so we have these two stories that as we hold up side by side kind of have this striking contrast. The leper who rightly seeks out the Son of God, who's cleansed by the Son of God, but then immediately fails to listen and heed his word. And Jesus' very ministry is hampered. But then we have Jesus seeking out the face of his Father in quiet and solitude and prayer. And he listens and obeys and says, I know what needs to be done, even when it defies our logic. So I wonder, can, can we commit this week? Could you commit this week? Could you even think about what is it to reprioritize just a little bit of my time? It will take determination to have solitude with God. Because constantly you're going to hear, everybody is looking for you. Moms, everybody's looking for you. You know, at work, everybody's looking for you. And, you know, your phone, your, it's going to take turning off your phone and turning off the computer and, and taking the music out of your ears and getting alone. And tuning in to God. And then as we do that, in his word and his prayer, can we truly listen, not just to what feels right to us, to be able to distinguish what feels right to us versus what God is saying, this is actually what I'm calling you to do. This is actually who I'm calling you to be. Because it's often going to be different. Father God, thank you so much that you are always willing when we ask to make us clean, to make us whole. That, that, thank you, Lord, that even in this, you knew what this guy was going to do, and that still didn't hamper your mercy. It still didn't deflect your love and your compassion and your healing power in his life. I thank you so much, Lord God, that when we just come to you and say, Lord, make me clean. If you are willing, you say, I am willing, be clean. May we be those, Lord, who are also willing <laughs> to seek your face, to sit at your feet, to carve out time of solitude in a life that we say is too busy to reprioritize our moments so that we would better know you, better be formed by you, and better be led by you. We pray this in the precious name and authority of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.